Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Monash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. Each episode, we investigate a particular medicine or disease, and we try to trace some of the ripples of its impact, some of the side effects that perhaps aren't immediately obvious or weren't intended. We seem to be living in a moment when people are hungry for really big overarching narratives, the kind of huge theories of everything that explain all sorts of disparate phenomena. I'm not just talking about extreme conspiracy theories like QAnon and Agenda 21, or even popular movements like wellness or positive visualization. There are also a set of relatively respectable ideas that seem to have burst the banks of academia and grown to encompass areas that their founders probably never envisaged, like evolutionary psychology or the invisible hand of the market or modern monetary theory. So what all of those things have in common is that they are a kind of, I guess, secret knowledge that once you become privy to it, explains all sorts of things. And that makes this episode really difficult for me because in my experience, one thing that unites academics of all stripes is that they love to suck their breath in through their teeth and say, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But the subject this week is malaria. And once you know what to look for, you start seeing malaria everywhere. It's very easy to feel like one of those guys with a whiteboard and a whole bunch of photographs connected by red thread and stains down his shirt. So just so you'll see where I'm coming from, I'll give you an example. Roughly 300 BC, there's a chap in Macedonia called Alexander III, better known to you and I as Alexander the Great, a name he got because he was really, really good at doing wars. He's not exactly coming from a standing start. His father, Philip II, was also no slouch. Philip had managed by a mix of conquest and diplomacy to unify most of classical Greece with a view to taking on the Persian Empire. But unfortunately for Philip, before he could get his plans into action, he was assassinated by his bodyguard. So, at the age of just 20, Alexander ascends to the throne and picks up more or less where his dad left off. Over the next 13 odd years, he proceeds to build one of the largest empires that the world to that point had ever known. He conquered not only the old enemy, the Persian Empire, but also Egypt and made a serious incursion into northern India. At its peak, his empire stretched 3,000 miles from end to end, which is almost 5,000 kilometers. And in addition to being king of Macedon, he also becomes hegemon of the Hellenic League, pharaoh of Egypt, king of Persia, and lord of Asia. When he reaches the Bayas River in northern India, his troops decide they've had enough and they refuse to go any further, so he turns back and begins to consolidate his empire. But before he can get too far along that path, he is stricken by a mysterious illness. Twelve days later, he dies. With the work of consolidation only partly done, the empire dissolves within about five years. It's impossible to say with certainty from this vantage point exactly what killed Alexander. The accounts of his death differ, and scientific understanding of various diseases was not advanced, so we can't be sure. But at least some historians pick malaria as the likely culprit, pointing to the symptoms and the duration of his illness, and the fact that he had just been travelling through mosquito-infested swamps immediately prior to falling ill. I'm going to read aloud from a book called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, by a guy called Timothy C. Weingard, who is a historian at Colorado Mesa University. Had this malarious mosquito not sucked the life out of Alexander, all indications point towards an advance into the Far East, truly uniting the East and West for the first time. Had this occurred, it would have upended the course of history and humankind, to the point where modern society would be literally unrecognisable. The unprecedented exchange of ideas, knowledge, disease and technology, including gunpowder, is too much to fathom. 
As I say, history is full of stories like this. For students of English history, Oliver Cromwell probably died of malaria, and two years later, Charles II ascended to the throne, bringing England's experiment with republicanism to an end. And of course, this isn't just about important leaders being cut down prematurely. Malaria is also a driver of demographic trends. For example, in the 16th and 17th centuries, London was growing rapidly, so many of the people who were farming on the fringes of the city were forced east into an area called the Fenlands. The Fens were absolutely rotten with malaria. The mortality rates were horrific, so a lot of those transplants decided to go further afield, to Ireland. More specifically, the area that is now Northern Ireland, creating a substantial Protestant population there. Um, Those two things are not unrelated. I could have chosen from a dozen more examples, but you can see how it becomes hard not to view malaria as a major historical and geopolitical force. And where the story really starts to get interesting for our purposes is when science makes an entrance. Once you have the means to treat or cure or otherwise manage the disease, you have a way to direct this powerful force. It could be that one side in a conflict or a contest has access to the technology and the other one doesn't. Or it could simply be that one nation or group of nations is in the right place at the right time when a new breakthrough is made. We're going to see examples of both later on. So the first thing we need to do is get a glimpse under the hood of some of these technologies that have been so significant. To do that, Divya Krishnan got a rundown on exactly what malaria is and how anti-malarials work from one of our leading malaria researchers, Darren Creek. Then we have a couple of short segments about events where it really seems like access to anti-malarials was a decisive factor in shaping the world as we know it today. Then finally, I'll be speaking with Professor Sue Charman, who has a fairly impressive track record in the development of new anti-malarials. She's going to give us some insights into the drug development process. Why is it so difficult to make new ones? And why do the old ones stop working? As befitting such a sprawling subject, this is going to be a two-part episode, just like our episodes on opioids a couple of months back. But first, Darren Creek. What is malaria and how is it transmitted? So malaria is an infectious disease um, and it's caused by parasites that infect our red blood cells. And, and when they infect our red blood cells, the, the patient usually comes down with fevers. Um, the, the fevers tend to occur about every two days because that's how long it takes for the parasite to grow inside the cell and then release um, every uh, roughly 48 hours and then that's where the fevers come on. Um, the, the fevers are treatable. Um, there's anti-malarial um, drugs around at the moment, which we can discuss more. But um, there's lots of malaria cases, over 200 million cases um, every year around the world. Um, and some of these cases turn into severe malaria, um, which presents with anemia and metabolic complications. And when the parasites, uh, they get stuck in the small blood vessels in, in the organs. And, and if that happens in the brain, that will lead to coma and, and then uh, often death. Uh, and it causes about half a million deaths every year. Malaria is one of the oldest known infectious diseases. We have evidence of it dating back to over 4,000 years old. So if it's been around for that long, why is it so difficult to treat? Well, malaria is a very complex disease, so there's lots of factors um, that I could say to answer that question. Um, I guess one of the key issues is that we don't have a a good vaccine that that can fully protect against malaria. And, And really... As humanity, there's not many diseases which we've eradicated, and those that we have are usually been beaten by vaccines. So until we can get a good vaccine, then it's, it's going to be very hard to eradicate. Um, but vaccines are difficult because parasites, they live inside our red blood cells, they hide within the cells, so it's hard for the immune system um, to get a look at them. Um, and also they, they're able to change the proteins they express. So essentially can change their coat to avoid our immune system. Um, so it's, they're very challenging um, to develop a vaccine against. 
Um, and the other aspect is this mode of transmission that I mentioned is, is through mosquitoes. Um, and so whilst there's mosquitoes around, it's very easy to transmit the disease around. Um, and really, some of the great leaps forward in malaria control have been in terms of controlling mosquito populations. And really, uh, malaria is the disease of the poor. Like most of the people now affected by malaria live in very poor countries. Um, and personally, my experience with this uh, when I was working in Uganda, um, in, a, in a rural area, we can see um, that the, the, most of the children coming into the clinic were coming in from, from the, the small farms um, and they lived in, in quite poor housing, um, whereas the children from town had very low incidence of malaria. They lived in well-constructed houses with good doors and windows um, and they weren't getting bitten very much by mosquitoes as opposed to the kids out in the, in, in the countryside. So, I mean, these days certainly insecticide-treated bed nets are one of the most effective measures to control malaria, but not everyone wants to sleep under a bed net. It's not that easy to sort of implement that everywhere. And actually where it has been implemented well, the mosquitoes change their habits, so they stop biting people while they're asleep and they bite them while they're up and, up and about earlier. So there's, there's no sort of simple solution. And, and really being able to promptly diagnose malaria and treat it with effective drugs is still one of our mainstays of control and, and really critical for malaria management. Malarial treatment itself seems to have quite a fraught history. How have we developed or how has humanity developed the first anti-malarial treatment? Yeah, well, malaria treatments actually go back a long way. There's, there's reports of natural products being used to treat malaria for thousands of years. Um, even probably two of our most common current drugs, quinine and artemisinin, are actually, they were actually derived from plants, so that they've been purified from, from plant extracts that have been known to treat malaria for many years. In terms of the sort of what we think of as a more modern drug, the first synthetic anti-malarial was actually developed in the late 19th century, and that was methylene blue, which actually came from a textile dye um, that was found to be very effective against malaria. Um, actually, probably wasn't used very much over the last century, but there's some work being done now to, to see whether it can be uh, reinvigorated as a treatment for malaria. Um, and then really the anti-malarial treatment stepped up around the time of World War II and, and soon after that, um, when some quinine derivatives such as chloroquine were made and used very widely, and, and they were very effective at controlling malaria in the middle of last century. Um, there are some anti-malarials that are used for prevention as well, and certainly some of these can also be used for, for prevention. Um, so for treatment, we usually combine a fast-acting drug like an artemisinin with a slow-acting partner drug, so we get a, a quick kill of the parasites and then are able to maintain that for a period of time. We've all heard about antimicrobial resistance, but now there seems to be the threat of anti-malarial resistance, and this is becoming a huge challenge for drug development. How is this impacting anti-malarial treatment worldwide? Yeah, so anti-malarial resistance is a major, major issue. Um, it's a, I guess it's a reality of treating uh, infectious diseases that resistance will occur, certainly in terms of the anti-malarials that have been used over the last century. Resistance has always uh, occurred, often within a few years after a new drug's been deployed into the field. Um, like the example I mentioned before, chloroquine was implemented around the 1950s in, in a large way and really made a big impact on wiping out a lot of malaria, but then by the 60s and 70s, chloroquine resistance has become widespread, and, and these days most malaria infections won't respond to chloroquine. Um, so that, that does happen with all any malarials. Um, we had a good thing recently with artemisinins because they were, they've been working really well in Africa for the last 15 or 20 years, um, and resistance is, well, hasn't actually um, emerged in Africa yet. But there has been a lot of reports of resistance in Southeast Asia recently, um, and that's spread now into five countries in the, the greater Mekong region of Southeast Asia. And this is really alarming because if, if we lose the artemisinins, if they're no longer effective, um, we're left really without any frontline treatments for malaria. 
And if that gets to Africa, um, where most of the malaria cases actually occur, then that can be diabolical. But it is also a threat to all of us. Um, I mean, even here in Australia, um, we're officially a malaria-free country and have been since 1981, but there are at least 700 malaria cases reported every year in Australia. And our near neighbours, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, the Pacific Islands, still have major problems with malaria. Um, and actually, those of us that don't live in malaria endemic countries are potentially more susceptible to these uh, lethal effects of malaria because we don't have any immunity. Um, so if we do get an infection, if we can't treat it with drugs, um, then there'll be severe consequences. What's next for anti-malarial development? Yeah, there's a lot of things happening in the world of anti-malarial development at the moment. Um, historically, it's it's been... Um, quite a slow process and, and often lagged behind many other diseases, um, mostly because the, the industry of, of big pharmaceutical companies, um, they have a, a commercial um, need to develop um, drugs that are going to be profitable and making drugs for the world's poorest people that have malaria is not a particularly profitable venture. Um, so there's, there's been a, a bit of a lack of investment over the last century, but I must say in the last probably 20 or so years, there's really been a good push from several initiatives, including industry, government, non-government organisations and, and charitable donors um, that have provided new opportunities for anti-malarial drug development. And, and the WHO has a, a really ambitious sort of eradication agenda now that we're really hoping to get on, on top of malaria this century. So a little update about that interview. In the time since we recorded it, artemisinin resistance has spread beyond those initial five countries and there have already been some indications of resistance markers in parts of Africa. So one of the drugs that Darren mentioned is quinine, which holds the distinction of being the first really effective anti-malarial. And because of that, it arguably had quite an influential role in shaping history. Not so much because of how it cured people, but because of who it cured. The author William Gibson famously said that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Well, it turns out the same is true of the past. One thing that might not be obvious to those of us who aren't intimately familiar with the US Civil War, who didn't, for example, learn about it in school, is that it should have been a very short fight. There were about 22 million people in the northern states and just shy of 9 million in the south. That meant that over the course of the war, the Union was able to field about 2.2 million soldiers and the Confederacy around 1 million. The Union was richer, it was better armed, its soldiers were better fed, and it had better medical supplies. Yet the conflict was to rage on for over four years, from 1861 to 1865. So what happens? The answer to that question has been debated endlessly by historians, both military and civilians, for decades, and we're not going to attempt to settle it here. But one factor that everybody seems to agree played a part was malaria, though they may of course differ as to exactly how big of a part. Because the South had seceded from the North, it was incumbent upon the North to be the aggressor, to achieve decisive victories over some of their southern strongholds. And many of those southern strongholds were in malarial zones. The southern troops tended to be more resistant to malaria having grown up there, so they had a bit of an advantage, at least at the outset. This meant that the northern generals were really reluctant to attack in summer, when malaria was at its worst, and this delay gave the south time to consolidate its defences to build supply lines and establish a wartime economy. It also meant that when the north did attack, its forces would be badly depleted by disease. Not only malaria, I should point out, but also dysentery was a problem. When Union troops made an assault on the strategically important city of Richmond, Virginia, over a quarter of their initial numbers were dead or too ill to fight by the time they reached the city gates. By the time they retreated in defeat, that number had risen to 
But as we all know, the North ultimately prevailed, and it emerges that malaria played a fairly substantial role in that eventual victory. One of the benefits of the North's superior resources is that they were able to enforce a blockade against the South as part of a strategy they called the Anaconda Plan. As the name implies, the idea was to encircle the Confederacy and slowly crush the life out of it by denying it the external resources it needed to keep fighting food, ammunition, arms, and most importantly for our purposes, medicine. One of the chief targets of the blockade was quinine. It took time, but the Anaconda Plan was ultimately very effective. In the South, at the outset of the war in 1861, one ounce of quinine cost $4. Two years later, in 1863, it had risen to $23 an ounce, and by 1865, there were reports of it changing hands in some places for anywhere up to $600 an ounce. The South's loss was the North's gain, with any medicine confiscated at the blockade added to their own stores. By the time General Ulysses S. Grant attacked the strategically important city of Vicksburg, his supplies of quinine were so plentiful that his soldiers were able to take it prophylactically. That is, he had enough that they could take it every day to prevent them from getting sick, rather than saving it until they were actually ill. In addition to strengthening his fighting force, the improved immunity to malaria gave him better tactical options. He could take a more direct route through the mosquito-infested swamps and even stage his attack from one. But even then, 15% of his force was still laid low, either dead or too sick to fight. But that was nothing compared to the toll amongst the Confederate garrison. At the end of the six-week siege, more than 15,000 of the original 33,000 troops were down with malaria. Many historians pinpoint the fall of Vicksburg as the moment that turned the tide of the war in the Union's favour. With Vicksburg, they had unchallenged control of the Mississippi River, which was one of the most important highways for transporting men and materiel. Obviously, there are myriad other factors here, and I want to be careful not to attribute too much to malaria and quinine, but it seems pretty clear that at the very least malaria prolonged the war and that quinine was a powerful weapon in the North's arsenal. That may have had some fairly far-reaching consequences. The historian Charles Mann writes that malaria delayed the Northern victory by months or even years. In the long run, this may be worth celebrating. Initially, the North proclaimed that its goal was to preserve the nation not to free slaves. The longer the war ground on, the more willing Washington was to consider radical measures. Um, end quote. The argument here is that the protracted and grinding nature of the war served to harden the North's position. And once it became apparent that a quick victory was not achievable, it gave Lincoln the political capital he needed to be more ambitious. Also, look, counterfactual history is a mug's game, but it's very, very tempting to speculate as to what might have happened had the North not had the advantage of superior quinine supplies. It was unquestionably a substantial edge, but was it decisive? At least one historian thinks so. Weingart again, in his book The Mosquito, concludes that, for the first time in history, quinine helped decide the outcome of a war. One of the methodological shortcomings of history as a discipline is that it has no capacity for A-B testing. We can't know for certain what would have happened had the North not had the advantage of quinine. But something fairly major that happened not long after the Civil War provides us with as close to a side-by-side comparison as we're likely to get. I'm talking about the construction of the Panama Canal. Various colonial powers had long recognised the desirability of a canal linking the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. At its narrowest point, Central America is just over 60 kilometres wide. That's a tantalisingly small distance to cross, especially when the alternatives are either looping south through Cape Horn or north through the Bering Strait, journeys that are both long and very hazardous. 
So people had been talking about it since at least the 16th century. And starting in 1881, the French made a serious attempt under the leadership of a guy called Ferdinand de Lesseps. If anybody should have been able to achieve it at that point, it would have been him. He had led the successful construction of the world's other great canal, the Suez, which links the Atlantic and Indian Oceans via the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. But the French effort in the Americas was doomed to failure. Again, there are a bunch of contributing factors here. The project was extremely undercapitalized, and non-trivial chunks of the money that were available were siphoned off in corruption scandals. There were also the issues of geography and geology. The Panama Isthmus was a lot more challenging than the Suez. Where Suez was largely a straight path across flat, sandy desert, the Panama project had to traverse high mountains and cut through thick jungle. De La Sepp's plan was for a sea-level canal, as opposed to one with locks, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that was probably never going to work. But the obstacle of most concern to us here today was, of course, disease. Not just malaria, but yellow fever and other tropical illnesses, which killed around 200 workers each month. By the time the money finally well and truly ran out and the project sputtered to a halt in 1889, over 22,000 lives had been lost. In 1904, the United States picked up the baton, beginning its ultimately successful construction of the Panama Canal we know today. And that 15-year gap turns out to have been very important from a scientific perspective. From the late 1870s, the scientific community began to suspect, with increasing certainty, that the mosquito was the vector by which malaria was transmitted. Prior to that, the model for many centuries had been something called miasma theory, which postulated that malaria, alongside many other diseases, was caused by foul or stale air. Indeed, the word malaria comes from medieval Italian and means literally bad air. The idea was that the particles of whatever it was that was rotting, flesh or vegetation, entered your body through your airways and effectively poisoned you. From around 1880, that account had begun to be displaced by the beginnings of modern-day germ theory, and by 1897, a trio of discoveries established to the satisfaction of most in the scientific community that in the case of malaria, the mosquito was the culprit. A British doctor called Ronald Ross discovered that mosquitoes were the vector of transmission for a variant of malaria in birds, and proposed that the same mechanism was probably at play in humans. Hot on his heels, an Italian zoologist called Giovanni Grassi and his collaborators worked out the life cycle of the human malarial plasmodium, conclusively proving that the Anopheles mosquito spread malaria in humans. The final discovery belonged to the German researcher Robert Koch, who had already racked up an impressive record for his work in diseases like anthrax, TB and cholera. It was Koch who finally established how quinine worked. The link between mosquitoes and malaria opened up a whole range of new ways to control the disease because it was now possible to target not only the parasite, but also the means by which it was transmitted. Bed nets and mosquito screens, fumigation, the draining of swamps and stagnant water where Anopheles mosquitoes like to breed, all these things could be employed. So when the US took over construction of the canal, they spent the first two years preparing the site, including getting the mosquito population under control. They drained and filled swamps. They installed modern water systems that eliminated the need to collect rainwater because that was a fertile breeding ground for mosquitoes. They undertook building works to eliminate places where water could collect and laid oil on top of pools and streams that could not be eliminated. Every single building in the country was fumigated. And they went through about a ton of quinine a year. To quote the United States Center for Disease Control, the result of this malaria program was eradication of yellow fever and a dramatic decrease in malaria deaths. 
The death rate due to malaria in employees dropped from 11.59 per 1,000 in November 1906 to 1.23 per 1,000 in December 1909. Of course, none of this is to say that building the canal was without its dangers. Over 5,000 people still perished in its construction. But successfully tackling malaria and yellow fever dramatically reduced mortality rates, enabling the US to pull off what the French and others before them, including the Scottish and the Spanish, had been unable to do. And you have to think about this in historical context. This is not just about creating a trade route. This is a time when the US is really beginning to emerge for the first time as a global power. And when the major means of projecting your power militarily is your navy, there's no such thing as an air force yet. So what the canal does is it gives the US the ability to move its ships and its troops from the Atlantic to the Pacific and vice versa, quite quickly if it needs to. It really announced the arrival of the US as a global military power. And of course, it gave control of one of the world's most important trade routes to them. And it's the US that has all these advantages, rather than say France or Spain or Scotland, at least in part because it was able to control malaria. So all of this kind of raises a question. The Panama Canal was completed over 100 years ago in 1914. And at that stage, the end of malaria must have seemed just over the next hill. Yet it's 2020, and with all the huge advances in scientific research, malaria is still a problem. One of the things I worry about sometimes with this podcast is that events can take on this air of historical inevitability, like there's some bit of science just waiting to be discovered, and once we stumble upon it, one thing necessarily follows another, and bang, we have this great new medicine that we release out into the world, and it has all these effects. Of course, the reality is much, much messier than that. There's so much chance involved, and medical research is so complex and expensive that it's actually getting the resources that's one of the big challenges, especially with a disease like malaria, where there's just not a lot of money to be made in treating it. It turns out that malaria is one of the diseases where we have quite a deep and broad set of expertise here at MIPS, so I thought this would be a good opportunity to grapple with some of that complexity around that process to try and understand just how many things have to go right to get a new medicine to market. So I spoke with Professor Sue Charman, Director of the Centre for Drug Candidate Optimization here at MIPS, to get a sense of exactly what the challenges are. Malaria is one of the, actually one of the few diseases where we've had successful drugs to be able to treat it for actually for hundreds of years since the Columbia Exchange. So why do we need to keep having new malaria drugs? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and we have some very, very effective drugs currently. Um, the current treatments are given twice a day for three days and um, they're they work amazingly well. Um, the current treatments are called the artemisinin combination therapies or ACTs and they consist of a short-acting artemisinin derivative that kills most of the parasites really quite quickly and then a longer-acting partner that goes on to mop up any remaining parasites. Um, the problem is now and also historically is that the parasite is very, very efficient at developing resistance to, to drugs. And this happened historically with chloroquine, which used to be very effective and is now not used in many regions of the world. And now it is, um, has happened with the ACT, so resistance to both the artemisinin component as well as to the partner drug is now present in some regions of Southeast Asia. So it doesn't mean that they don't work anymore, but they don't work quite as effectively as they did before, and it takes a bit longer to start to kill the parasites. So really we need new drugs, um, ideally those that act by 
different mechanisms so that they're not subject to the same resistance mechanisms. This would just give us many more treatment options and it would be particularly important if resistance does become more widespread. What does the Centre for Drug Candidate Optimization actually do and what role does it play in those, in those processes? Um, so we work um, at a very, very early stage of drug discovery. Um, we collaborate with both medicinal chemists and biologists. And what our role is, is to try and characterise new drug candidates to make sure that they have an appropriate exposure profile within the body. Um, and also to identify any liabilities that those compounds might have that would complicate their further development. So essentially, we want to make sure that any new candidate has the right properties so that they can be easily administered, ideally with an oral dose, and also that drug concentrations um, are maintained in the body for long enough for the drug to be effective. So this process really starts early on um, with the initial chemical design and it goes right through the optimization project uh, process until a clinical candidate is finally selected. Are we talking somebody has the, the basic molecule and then you guys kind of, I mean, you optimize it, you elaborate it. Is that well, what happens? Or? The, the optimization project is a real team effort um, and it, it happens between medicinal chemists, between parasitologists and between pharmaceutical scientists. And we're the pharmaceutical scientists as part of the project team. And you have to have these three different areas really working collectively in order to get not only the right chemical structure that gives you activity and, uh, and also gives you safety, but you've got to make sure that it's hitting all the different stages of the parasite, ideally, um, all the different stages, and you have to have the right sort of delivery characteristics so that it actually can go on and become a drug. And without all of these different areas really working collectively together, you're never going to get to the end of it and have a successful um, candidate that, that even is positioned to go into clinical development, much less has the, has the, um, the possibility of going on to become a drug. It's about really trying to understand what the, what the properties are of the, of the molecules are that are dictating the time course in the body. Um, and it's, it's both a physiological process as well as a physicochemical process. So based upon the structural properties of the molecule, you have a different type of exposure profile. Now, we want to be able to give these drugs any new drugs, we want to be able to give them in a very, very short course of treatment so that we have better compliance by the patients. And that requires a, an extended exposure profile. We certainly don't want to be giving a new drug three and four times a day, like, like some medications we've all taken have to be given. Right. So it's not just about making sure that it's safe and that it works. It's making sure that it works well and, and requires minimum number of doses and all that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, right. And ideally, you know, most people would prefer to take an oral medication. They don't want to be injected with um, a new drug. Um, and plus having an injectable would, would create all sorts of issues when you're trying to get drugs to people in, in you know, the far reaches of Africa um, because it's very, very difficult, would require different storage conditions, and it would just um, be very much more problematic than giving an oral medication. So in order to be able to, to give a convenient dosage form with a convenient dosing regimen, we really have to have the right sort of characteristics and the right sort of properties. 
Can you tell us a little bit about some of the more successful or the furthest progressed drug discovery projects that you've been involved in? Yes, um, sure. Um, so I started working with the Medicines for Malaria Venture, who are based in Geneva. They're a, a not-for-profit product development partnership that's mission is to discover and develop new anti-malarials and get them to the patients that need them. And I started working with them and with various different um, anti-malarial discovery teams in about 2000. And since that time, I've probably contributed to about a dozen different re research projects, um, drug discovery projects over that um, that 20-year period. Of those dozen or so projects, um, seven project teams have progressed um, new candidates into clinical development, which for us is a real success. Of course, um, there's never any guarantee that those drugs will go, that those compounds will go on to become drugs, but just getting into the clinic is a, is a real milestone. Um, there are a few projects that stand out. Um, the first project that we ever worked on um, was one that was focused on a class of compounds called synthetic peroxides. This program um, originated at the University of Nebraska with a very excellent chemist there by the name of Jonathan Venestrom. And ultimately, it delivered two candidates into clinical development. Um, the first one of those was a compound that we know as OZ277 or Arterolane. That compound went on to be a drug that is now marketed in, in, in India, um, and it's still undergoing further clinical development in order to try and expand its utility and its use in other regions. Um, it's, a, it's a drug that's very interesting. It acts in a manner that's quite similar to the artemisinins, but it's completely synthetic, whereas the artemisinins have to be still extracted um, initially from a plant source. We also, from that same program, progressed a compound called OZ439 or artifenamel, um, and that's a longer-acting peroxide antimalarial. So that was a, a very um, effective program. Um, there was another program that back in the mid-2000s that we worked with a group um, in Bangkok that discovered a compound known as P218. Um, it's a really interesting molecule. It acts against parasites that are resistant to some of the older drugs, um, drugs like pyrimethamine that act by a very specific mechanism. And that compound P218 is currently in a phase one clinical trial. And then there have been two other programs, one of which um, originated at the University of Cape Town and one at the University of Texas Southwestern. And each of these two programs progressed um, compounds into the clinic, and both of which act by new mechanisms. So that's something that um, as a drug discovery scientist we want to do is be able to, to find molecules that act by a new mechanism so that they're not subject to the same resistance problems of the, of the current drugs. The, um, the group with UT Southwestern we're still working with, we have a BRCA program with them that um, is aiming to try and find compounds that act by the same mechanism, but at a different stage of the parasite life cycle so that they can be used not so much for treatment, but hopefully for prevention. And what, what's the time frame we're talking about from sort of the initial germ of an idea or, you know, the discovery of a compound that might work to, I mean, I guess in an ideal scenario to, to a drug reaching market and being in patients, but even to trials? Um, so from the stage of identifying a hit right through the optimization process and getting into clinical development or, or readying a compound for clinical development is probably on average about three or four years. That's really only the, just the start. Um, it's a very, very long journey. And 
once you get to that stage that the compound has really been optimized, it's been tested in all the different preclinical models that we have available, and it's been selected as a clinical development candidate, it still has to go under very, very extensive testing to make sure that it's actually safe enough to be tested in humans. And many, many drugs fail at this point, so they never actually ever get to clinical development. So getting to that milestone is really, really quite challenging. Um, if you get that far, um, which, um, you know, at least some of the compounds that we've worked on have gotten that far, they then go into a human volunteer trial. And again, that's to further confirm that there are no significant side effects and also to make sure that the exposure profile, once you give that drug to a human, is actually consistent with what we predicted based upon all of the um, preclinical studies, both in vitro and in vivo, that we conducted. So that first volunteer study is a really important step as well. Um, and eventually, um, if all goes well, it gets into patients. It starts off in patients, just in very, very small groups. And that initial question is just to see in a patient population that has the disease that you're trying to treat, does it actually work? Does it actually provide um, the effect that you want to see? And of course, in malaria, that is um, a reduction in parasitemia. So you're not even at that stage looking for a cure. You're just looking to see that the drug kills parasites within a, a defined period of time, and it does so very effectively. What are the economics here? How is it? How are we getting money to do this? Well, that's that's challenging. Um, med the medicines for malaria venture, as I mentioned, is a not for product, a not for profit product development partnership. Um, they support much of the early stage work that needs to occur. And they've also been very instrumental in um, putting in place the various different preclinical uh, testing models that you need to have in order to evaluate different stages of the parasite life cycle. Once it moves past that early stage of discovery, you really into needing a lot of a lot of money to support the development pathway. MMV do stay involved, but they also try and partner up with different pharmaceutical companies that not only have the expertise and the ability to do much of the testing in house, but also um, have the the financial resources to support that work. And the pharmaceutical industry. While they may not be involved at the very early stages, they do typically get involved as um, compounds move into development. And I think most of the compounds that are currently in clinical development do have pharmaceutical partners that are working with MMV to progress those programs. And for my soul, you are praying. That's all we have time for on this episode of Side Effects May Vary. In part two, we'll be speaking with the Monash Milkshake team, who have just won the Eureka Prize for coming up with an innovative way of delivering a single-dose malaria cure to children. We'll be looking at another chapter in the story of quinine, this time how it shaped the British Empire in India and Africa, and we'll be investigating one of the most contested narratives on this subject. About 50 years ago, it looked like the world had the chance to completely eradicate malaria from the world, but we squibbed it at the last minute. What happened? And was the environmental movement really to blame? 
That should be in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thanks to our guests, Darren Creek and Sue Charman. This episode was produced by me, Devia Krishnan, Dave Rogers and Caleb Linder. Music over the closing credits is Bite Away by Melbourne Act, The Glorious North. And when you beg, beg.